It's Philosophy Talk. A wise man once said that nothing really dies. It just comes back in a new form. Then he died. So next time you see a lowly salamander, think twice before you step on it. It might be you. Stand by for reincarnation. The Dalai Lama thinks he's the same person as the previous Dalai Lama. Could the Dalai Lama be wrong? Do you think my mother's out there somewhere? Well, perhaps she's around us now. She may have already been reincarnated as that newborn baby or that tiny mouse in the nacho cheese. If I work real hard to be good, I'll be reincarnated as some better sort of being. If I don't, I may be reincarnated as a toad. Well, why does all of that matter to me now? I guess is Robert Thurman from Columbia University. Reincarnation, past lives, future selves. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Hi, I'm Josh Lampy. And I'm Ray Briggs. Thanks for downloading this episode of Philosophy Talk. Did you know we've got a library of more than 500 episodes over at our website? Yeah, at philosophytalk.org, we question everything. Except your intelligence. From Aristotle to Zeno, from anarchy to Zen. Become a subscriber today at philosophytalk.org. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner at Stanford University, where Ken teaches philosophy and I did for 40 years. Today we're thinking about reincarnation, past lives, future selves. Reincarnation is an old and honored doctrine. Not only do Buddhists the world over accept it, but, you know, one out of four Americans does, too. You know, but I'm puzzled about what exactly reincarnation even means, frankly, John. Well, the Dalai Lama put it pretty succinctly, quote, In order to accept reincarnation, we need to accept the existence of past and future lives. Sentient beings come into this present life from their previous lives and take rebirth again after death. But I just don't get it. One person dies, another is born. Now, presumably the second has no memory of being the first since at birth nobody remembers anything. So what exactly is it that makes the second person a reincarnation of the first one rather than just a new and separate person? Well, good question. The Dalai Lama and anybody who takes the idea of reincarnation seriously has to have an answer. Okay, so what's the answer? What makes a subsequent person count as a reincarnation of a particular earlier person? Well, let's start with a easier case. Ask yourself what makes the events of your life 40 years ago or 14 years ago or four years ago part of your present life. Well, there are certainly a lot of things you could say about that. I don't deny that. But I don't see how that's going to help you with understanding reincarnation at all. Well, because whatever relation holds between those past events, between past and present stages of your current life, that very same relation, or at least something essentially like it, must hold between your past lives and your future lives if reincarnation is correct. Wait, wait a minute. Wait. You're, you're, you're saying that two discrete lives might be related to each other in the same way that the distinct stages of one continuous life are related to each other? You got it. Uh, I don't see how that could possibly be right. I mean, I've got the same body, well, more or less the same body as... Mostly more, Okay, John. As my younger self... 
But I wouldn't share a body with my reincarnated self, would I? I mean, look, I supposedly, I could be reincarnated in the body of a woman, a completely different kind of body. Ken, haven't you read your lock, shoemaker, parfit? Personal identity doesn't require having the same body. It just requires having what Locke called the same consciousness. Once you grant that, there's really no reason to deny that you, Ken Taylor, might be reincarnated with a completely different body. You might be David Hume, oh, my favorite philosopher. Uh, that's maybe that's why I'm so fond of you. Uh, John, I mean, look, but look, no, 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 no. Even that's not going to help because what Locke meant by same consciousness, was basically links of memory. I don't remember what David Hume or anyone else who died before I was born did. I, I mean, I, I, I remember that Hume wrote the treatise, but I don't remember writing the treatise. I, I can't do that. So even by that criterion, I'm not Hume. I'm not a reincarnation of anybody. I'm just a little old me, Ken Taylor. Well, I'll grant you that most of us don't remember past lives, but some of us do. There's quite a bit of evidence of that. Maybe everybody's capable of it. Uh, maybe people claim to remember past lives, but why should we believe them? Well, because there's also the explanatory power of the concept of karma. The things you did in the past shape who you are now, even if you don't remember them. Karma is like that. What you are in this life is partly shaped by what people you are the reincarnation of were like, what they did even if you don't remember. Oh, come on. Let's go back to you. Suppose I'm the reincarnation of David Hume to, to indulge your fantasy. Now, Hume died way back in 1776 in Scotland. I wasn't born until the 1950s in Ohio. Look, as a naturalistic, scientific kind of guy, I don't see how what Hume did way back then, way over there, could affect me in any way. I, I, it sounds like I'd have to believe in really spooky causes and immaterial souls to, to under, even understand reincarnation, and I don't believe in any of that stuff, John. Well, souls might help. Uh, dualism might help, but those aren't really necessary. If you're an up-to-date scientific naturalist, you should be aware of how strange the universe, the physical universe, is turning out to be. I don't see how that's going to help you with reincarnation, John. I really don't. Well, there's all kinds of influences. Actions at a distance, that is, at a distance according to our ordinary dimensions, that we don't understand. Quantum events zillions of miles apart can be entangled so that the properties of the two events correlate and complement in strange ways. Nobody can really explain consciousness either. Maybe consciousness involves these deep physical connections and other dimensions we don't yet understand. So you can't just dismiss this old and honored doctrine out of hand. John, you sound like you might actually believe in reincarnation. Well, to tell you the truth, Ken, I did. In, uh, a, in a past life? Well, no. <laughs> it, well, not quite. In, a, in an earlier, much earlier version of this life, I wouldn't mind being reconvinced. I, uh, at least, have an open mind. Well, that, that's a good thing, John, because we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Shukin Kalantari, to talk to a psychologist who chronicles the claimed memories of children who seem to have lived past lives. She files this report. One day, a five-year-old boy from Oklahoma said the strangest thing to his mother. I don't get why God will let you be 61 years old and make you come back as a baby. I hate being little. That's not him. That's my nephew doing a reenactment. The boy, Ryan, 
also told his mom that he used to live in old Hollywood. He danced on Broadway, was an actor, ran a talent agency, and had a big house with a swimming pool. He also said he traveled to Paris by sea. Mommy, I can't wait until I get big again. And I get to go on those big boats and wear fancy clothes. And dance with all the pretty ladies. That's how he sees the world, Mommy, from a big boat. Ryan's mom, Cindy Hammonds, was a Southern Baptist. She didn't believe in past lives. But she went to her local public library and picked up some books about old Hollywood for her son. One day they flipped to a photograph from the 1932 movie, Night After Night. Goodness, what beautiful diamonds. Goodness had nothing to do with it, dearie. The black and white photo showed the movie's cast. Mae West, George Raft, and to the left, a tall skinny man wearing a fedora. Ryan got excited. He told his mom he used to be that man in his past life. Cindy called Dr. Jim Tucker, a child psychologist at the University of Virginia. He studies children's past life claims. Cindy wanted Dr. Tucker to track down the identity of the man in the hat. And it was a fellow named Marty Martin, who most of us have certainly never heard of, but it turned out with a little investigation uh, that we learned that Marty Martin had in fact danced on Broadway Marty Martin also lived in Hollywood, started a talent agency, and had a big house with a swimming pool. He and his wife went to Europe on, on the Queen Mary, and, and we have pictures of them in Paris. Um, so there were a lot of details that Ryan gave uh, that matched perfectly this life of, of this guy that, that he had pointed to in the picture. Ryan's case isn't alone. Tucker's team at the University of Virginia chronicled over 2,000 cases of past life claims. A three-year-old from Louisiana remembers vivid details of fighting in World War II. Another kid recalls being a golf pro in the 1920s. I think we can now say that we have good evidence that some young children have knowledge of lives from the past. That would mean a part of the consciousness uh, of the previous person continued on after they died and, and then somehow became associated with these children. Tucker says if reincarnation really exists, then the mainstream materialistic view that everything in nature comes from physical matter is wrong. We're not just a hodgepodge of neurons. It's certainly not woo-woo new age stuff. I mean, it's, it's what you know, Einstein was struggling with and folks like Niels Bohr and, and Max Planck and all those, I mean, that's, that's what they were all talking about and, and um, what quantum physics was based on. Max Planck was the founder of quantum theory. He said, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. In other words, the physical world is just a manifestation of our minds. So I, I do think that there's more than the physical world, that there is this consciousness part or, or mind part uh, that is not wholly dependent on the physical world. And you know, if you accept that premise, then a lot of things may be possible that uh, would not be otherwise. Things like having past lives. Today, Jim Tucker travels the country, researching children's past life stories. And he's still in touch with Ryan and his mom, Cindy. Ryan is 10 now. He does really well in school, and he still has memories of being an old Hollywood actor named Marty Martin. Or at least he thinks he has those memories. Because past lives don't really exist, right? For Philosophy Talk, I'm Shuka Kalantari. Thanks, Shuka. Interesting stuff from Marty Martin in old Hollywood to Niels Bohr and quantum physics. 
I'm John Perry. With me is my fellow Stanford philosopher, Ken Taylor. And today we're thinking about reincarnation. We're joined now by Robert Thurman. He's author of Infinite Life, Awakening to the Bliss Within. He's a professor of religion at Columbia University, where he, he holds the first endowed chair in Indo-Tibetan Buddhist studies, the first endowed chair in the West. Robert, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Oh, hi, Ken. Oh, nice to meet you. Uh, hi, Robert. So, so you not only study the doctrine of reincarnation, uh, you accept it. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, so it's clear from your books and video. So just to start with, can you tell us when and why you came to believe in reincarnation? Sure. Um, originally, I ran into it from a logical point of view in that I never believed in the concept, uh, the incoherent concept of an uncaused cause of any kind. And I was not a theist at all. And uh, so it, it seemed uh, pleasing to me, like the law of thermodynamics, sort of on the mental level, let's call it, that there would be some previous um, causal, causal process of consciousness, just like there are previous causal processes of material things. And, uh, but then I was frustrated because having uh, I read a whole literature in India and Tibet and East Asia and everywhere, uh, where it's sort of almost a matter of common sense that there are these former and future lives and so on. But I never could remember anything myself, so I was a bit frustrated. And then uh, I guess I was in my 50s, and I was in Tibet, and I suddenly did have some memories of several previous lives. And um, I, it was kind of a, almost like a joke. It was a funny experience where I was at a particularly holy place, actually Mount Kailash, which is a very sacred mountain in southern Tibet, just north of the Indian and Nepali borders. And uh, I suddenly heard these voices in my mind, which were people I recognized. And uh, they were saying, we wanted to go here always. And they were talking to each other, actually. <laughs> and we always wanted to go here. And now we finally get there as this turkey from New York in a Jeep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. And I was like, it was like somebody was hovering over my head and I looked around kind of like, and then I slowly integrated that. And then subsequently I've had other memories of that type. So there was some sort of a breakthrough of my linear, you know, Exeter, Harvard mind about how this can't really be because of our consensual reality that we are just these material entity mechanisms. You know? uh, so now let me, let me ask you, so you're convinced you're the reincarnation of someone. Uh, does that mean that you are the very same person, uh, just like I'm the same person who got out of bed this morning in Palo Alto and the very same person who moved there in 1974? Or is it something well, more complicated and nuanced than that? Well, of course, it's more complicated and nuanced than that. You know, if, if you have the shape of nostrils of your grandfather, that doesn't mean you have the very same nose. There's an incredibly complicated thing of boiling down instructions for forming proteins into shape that come down through your genetic inheritance. And then that rebuilds itself in you as you grow up as a being and you end up with a nostril shape or an earlobe shape or a lot of other qualities that you inherit from your parents through these complicated mechanisms that Crick and Watson only discovered for us very, very recently, but it's very, very complex. So, Bob, and nobody says you have the same nose. Bob, we're going to have to explore the complexity. I mean, it's a complicated thing, obviously, and we, we need to go yes. to a break, but we'll explore the complexity after this break. You're listening okay. to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about reincarnation with Robert Thurman from Columbia University. 
If you're the reincarnation of someone, are you responsible for their sins? Do you get credit for their good deeds? And what are the moral implications of reincarnation? Reincarnation, reward, and regret, the new three R's, plus your calls and emails when Philosophy Talk continues. Philosophy Talk needs you. Show your support for Philosophy Talk by becoming a partner in our online community of thinkers. Your tax-deductible donations help us stay on the air. And the community needs more thinkers like you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for thinking. And thank you for donating. Reward and punishment for deeds from past lives. We're talking karma and reincarnation. I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Robert Thurman from Columbia University, author of Infinite Life, Awakening to Bliss Within. So, Bob, I'm going to grant you that whatever this relationship is, and we're going to have to explore it, but I want to hold off on that. Uh, Whatever this relationship is between a past self and a current self that makes them Mm -hmm. shared lives in some sense, uh, I I still am wondering about this. If I'm the reincarnation of somebody from the past, well, what does that say about my responsibility for what they did, my moral responsibility for what they did? What's the view well, there? Yeah, it's not a question of moral responsibility. And even you used the phrase earlier in introducing reward and punishment. That all comes from a monotheistic idea that there's an omnipotent controller of the universe and dishes out rewards and punishments for people in order to make them behave. But in the case of where you go to the gym and you lift weights to keep a strong arm, you don't consider that your strong bicep is a reward that somebody donates to you. Okay. It's a it's a it's an effect of the causal action where you go and lift a weight and you know you eat food and you do it whatever. But, but and so similarly, let me ask you. what you what you did in previous life is causal in shaping your life and this life, and in a way, you it's not a matter of responsibility. It's a matter that. Therefore, if you ever if you accept that premise, then what you do now will shape how you will be in the future, so, and it gives you an ethical reason to do things that will shape it positively. So, Bob, that means yeah. okay, if I if my previous self was yeah. something of a jerk or something of a saint, that mm-hmm. that that affects my moral character. So it helps, or my psychological character is the idea. So the idea is a That's sort right. of Skinnerian idea extended through past lives. The condition- you could say so. For example, your friend there, he said you were probably the reincarnation of David Hume. So his study of the mind and of nature created an intelligence and, an, and a crit- critical acumen within you. And somehow the seeds of that, not obviously the whole thing, but the seeds of that transmitted through many intermediary lives where you were a philosophy professor in many other lesser institutions, no doubt at Stanford. And uh, <laughs> now you're a big philosopher and you're running around defending the ridiculous idea of materialism. Well, that's nice of you to put it that way. Uh, (laughs) Now, I I actually had the privilege of talking to the Dalai Lama about all this once. Oh, good. And he used something like the analogy I used before. That is, he said, look, there's physical dimensions, or at least uh, non-mysterious dimensions in that they will eventually become part of organized science that Western science doesn't understand. 
So mm-hmm. on his view, reincarnation didn't involve uh, anything unscientific, but it did mm-hmm. involve understanding more and more about consciousness and causation. So do you see right. that there, there is an awaiting science of consciousness that will help us understand Absolutely. Uh, how these Actually, forces go through time? Yeah, it's not an awaiting science. It's awaiting for us in the West since we're a backward culture. But if there's a Buddhist science from India, views, Hindu Bob. science. <laughs> you asked to be opinionated. There's a Hindu and Buddhist uh, inner science, as they called it, which they consider the king of the sciences, which could include philosophy and psychology. And that science is highly developed over thousands of years and is scientific. It is not so, a matter of religious faith or belief or blind faith. Absolutely not. Bob, you claim it's scientific, but look, okay, scientific hypotheses have to compete with alternative hypotheses. So here's an alternative hypothesis by the determinants of human psyche and behavior. Well, there's the mm-hmm. genes, right? There's mm-hmm. learning and environment, and there's present mm-hmm. exper- experiment, experience. Mm-hmm. Now, if you could mm-hmm. show me that there was something left out of the determinants of Ken's uh, philosophical attitudes beyond the way his brain's built, the genes that built the brain, the environmental impact and the formation of the brain, his particular learning experience and the things that he's undergoing. I mean, I'm not sure there's any room for for the past life of David Hume to have shaped. Uh, and, and I don't see, I don't see, I mean, I, I, I can hear the wish for the scientific story to be tellable, but I can't see that it actually competes with actual real-life underground scientific stories that are in the process of being worked out. So defend well, yourself. because you are, you're not aware of them. You don't see them because you don't look for them. The point is that uh, it's, uh, the space was opened in 1926 by the Niels Bohr and Heisenberg, where they stated that the deep nature of reality is inaccessible to theory and to observation, and the concept of material objectivity and impartial, no subjectivity involvement observation of nature is an illusion, and that observing things affect them, and therefore the subjectivity has to be factored in. Well, uh, Bob, let me me interrupt you here. We need to keep this as a back and forth now. Niels Bohr, that, that's one interpretation of quantum mechanics. We don't want to turn this into a show about quantum mechanics. Let me ask you a quick question. There are six billion people uh, in the mm-hmm. world today, all of them conscious. You say nothing comes from nothing. but Exactly. B- but where did all those souls come from? How there can they keep increasing other... if there's not some consciousness coming from nothing? Well, first of all, there's no, nobody said that they're always human. Like in between being David Hume and Ken, he might have been different kinds of animals, although not likely, but he might have. There's no, all animals have consciousness, and every human has been every animal, actually, just like genes have been composites of different other animals in their whole you know, uh, transmission of things. And so that's one place. There's a lot of dead animals, as you know, in the last uh, yeah. thousand years. But... Um, also, the idea that this is the only planet on which there's life is considered ridiculous within Indian science. It's some sort of self-centered human thing that we're the only planet. And even people like Huxley, who defended Darwin, he's completely already behind beyond that. He doesn't need Carl Sagan and Seti to discover life on other planets. It is completely counterintuitive and completely silly to think this is the only place there was human life. And on the extremely subtle level of uh, where consciousness goes, 
then uh, there could be movement from planet to planet. That's no problem. So, Bob, no, time and space are not a problem, so, like infinite entanglement of molecules. So, Bob, look, I grant you. Mm-hmm. Look, I grant you. There's a po- lots of mind expanding possibilities here. Exactly. I, I grant you that. But you uh, live in California, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what I don't see is I, Buddhism is a very sophisticated religion, and as as, uh, as uh, John pointed out, uh, mm-hmm. the Dalai Lama thinks of himself as a scienti- scientific kind of guy. Definitely. And you're, you're putting this in scientific terms. But, 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 but uh, and, and, and so if we really understood the full nature of the universe, there might be room for this. But again, I don't see the positive reasons. You know, look, yeah, sure, there are, I, I think it's obvious, I think it's extraordinarily likely that there is, a, that there is a life on other planets. I'm even tempted by the idea of a multiverse in contemporary visits, so so that there's mm-hmm. not just one universe; there are many of them simultaneously. I'm oh, yeah. I'm convinced of the possibility of lots of things, but I mm-hmm. still don't see any reason to think that this consciousness, which is my consciousness, didn't have a beginning and an end, and when it's extinguished, it's just extinguished, and the universe can do this trick of creating new consciousnesses over and over again. By some, sorry, I grant you that's still not completely solved, but I don't see a reason to believe in this continuity between my consciousness and consciousness all over the universe and animal. I mean, my body's not continuous with them, so why might think my... I just don't see any positive reason except a hope and a religious conviction to believe it. Well, your point is this, is that your consciousness is some sort of stream of energy as you experience it, wouldn't you say? It's something like that. Okay, so why is that stream of energy, subtle as it may be, the sole stream of energy on this universe that becomes nothing or can come from nothing? When you have the law of thermodynamics about all streams of energy, why are you pick that one particularly? But but look, Bob. There's a big gap between saying let, let's let's say, say yeah, consciousness. No, 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 no. That's a stream of energy unlike other things we know, and like other things we know, it doesn't come from nothing. Grant you Good. all. I'm granting you all that. It's still a big step to say that that conscious. I mean, uh, we know that this chair in front of me came from molecules from other things, but that doesn't make right. it the same chair. That doesn't mean its shape is due to the other chairs who go donate its molecules. Says- In what sense am I like or fundamentally like the person whose consciousness molecules came to me? Now I'll, you can I'll say I could. You back. can say I could be, yeah. but why am I? What does it mean? Well, the point is this: if you want to carry on denying the fact of your own consciousness. Because you're scared of a formal life and you're scared of a don't future impute life, which me is bad mo- Don't impute that, me bad it's motives. It's not a bad motive. It's a normal human motive. <laughs> All of you materialists, you dogmatic materialists who are <laughs> yeah, being totally unscientific by doing so okay. and do not have an open mind about actually your own consciousness uh, I, uh, and are determined that you have a ready-to-made anesthetic oblivion waiting for you at death no matter how okay. you live your life okay. and, and just because your body stops you know bah, bah, now, let me go back to something bah, you said in bah, the earlier bah, period bah. No, no 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 wait a minute now i get a chance you earlier said why would you be connected you know that you're the same as you were 40 years ago or 30 years ago i don't know how old you are so you said that but you know you could have had an accident in between and you could have forgotten absolutely everything you knew when you 40 years ago, and you would have not even know your name. And then and other people would say to you, oh, you know, you used to be so-and-so. And you would have no personal subjective 
awareness of having ever been so-and-so, and you'd still be in this body. I'm sure there are many cases can be found medically. So that person is still the same person we can see because we, we can see the body, but mentally they don't think they're the same person. So your argument about how you don't remember a previous life it does not actually work because actually, A, a lot of people do, and B, uh, you still have a continuum, a continuum of things, oh, right, and you right. just have okay. lost those memories, that's uh, all. Bob, Bob I, you, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not arguing against anything. I'm just trying to understand. Yeah, the we've, got a, we've got an email here. Yeah, that good. I, I, I'd yeah, like good. To, I would like to ask Dr. Thurman how Buddhist philosophy reconciles a belief in the impermanence and lack of fixed belief with the doctrine of reincarnation. If I'm not right. the same essential self I was last year or even one moment ago, how can right. I be the reincarnation of a person who died before I was born? Right. The, the way you can do it is through impermanent, constant change. Like they have an analogy, a wonderful one, when a big rope you know, that holds the Queen Mary to the dock, there's no one thread that goes through the whole rope. It's a set of fibers woven, and it's a very strong rope. And there's, there's a need of one string that goes all the way through it. So that means that consciousness changes every second, every split second, just like the cells in your body change all the time. And, but continuity is continuity, and you have it in your law of thermodynamics. Okay, you just Bob. haven't extended that to your mind. Bob, if you'll permit me, I'm going to let a caller in here. Christopher from San Francisco is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, uh, Christopher. How's it going? How are you doing today? Okay. What's your comment uh, yes. or question? Uh, yes, I was wondering, you guys were talking about... Um, just reincarnation and karma and things like that. And I was wondering where, um, like, lucid dreaming and things like that might come into place, if that's something that has any similarity. I'm not, um, uh, thanks for the question, uh, Chris. I'm not sure, uh, Bob, is there any connection between that or not? I'm, not, I'm just not sure. I, I couldn't tell what the word he said, Milton James? No, lucid dreaming, he said. Oh, lucid dreaming. Yeah. Does that have any con connection to evidence for reincarnation? Well, in a way, it's kind of fun because when you're dreaming, you don't actually remember your waking state later, and you don't know that you're dreaming, actually. And yet there, and that you're a continuum. Your consciousness is in continuum with your waking state. Later, when you look back at a dream, if you remember it, you maybe notice that, well, I had a bad event in the day, and then I had such and such a dream in the night. So you see a continuity. But in the actual dream state, you don't feel the sense of continuity with your waking state. And yet, clearly, we'll say that you do when we investigate the situation. Okay. So in that sense, it's an interesting analogy. And the second analogy is that the person in what's called in the between state uh, after death is in something like a dream state, a dreamlike state, in which they sort of semi-aware of having been alive. They're having a lot of freaked-out experiences, so, and then they begin to seek a new, new embodiment. So, and uh, that's that's analogized in the Buddhist scientific literature to the dream state. So that in that those two ways that has some variance. So I would, briefly, I, I I just very briefly. I mean, if I, you sure. said you came to believe this because you heard these voices in your head talking to each other. Well, eventually, so, yeah, 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 yeah. I believed it before that for scientific reasoning. Uh, yeah. Okay. But I got to tell you, if I were to experience what you experienced. I'm not sure, since you didn't describe it in full phenomenological detail. I would worry that I was going undergoing something like uh, what schizophrenic on, on schizophrenics undergo go thought assertions, thoughts that occur inside the head that they think that they're they're not their own. I mean, why not 
be more skeptical? Because I, I don't hear much skepticism. Why not be more skeptic, skeptic, well, skeptical? Well, you could say that. That's, I'm perfectly open to that interpretation, actually. That's perfectly fine. There's no final discovery. One interesting thing you might be intrigued about by Buddhist science is that all descriptions of relative reality are considered hypothetical. They just are relative, that is. They're, they can be true or false within a context, but there's no absolute truth formulated about relative reality except for that negation. It's very Popperian, actually, and it comes from thousands of years ago for the discovery of what they call emptiness, which is that, that actually reality, there's a kind of a negation of human attempts at conceptualizing and theorizing reality, which doesn't stifle conceptualization and theorization, but it makes one keep a kind of caveat about it, not to become dogmatic and fanatic about any particular description. So the case of reincarnation is also like that. So my interpretation of it, which has a lot more richness to it than I could describe to you in the tiny few seconds you guys allow me to have, uh, was very convincing to me. However, I'm perfectly open that I was having a psychotic breakdown, and but on top of which I was at 16,000 feet of altitude, and uh, my brain may have been starved of oxygen, <laughs> and the uh, molecules were talking to me, you know? Who knows? You're, you're, Who listen, knows? you're listening to Philosophy Talk, a radio show where we do have to keep things short. We're thinking about reincarnation with Robert Thurman from Columbia University. Uh, is reincarnation just another religious belief inherited from old times? Or is there persuasive evidence that science-minded people should believe? Present evidence of past lives when philosophy talk continues. We hope you're enjoying this week's free stream. The future of Philosophy Talk is in your hands. Become a strategic partner for a $250 donation. But any donation helps a lot. Take it off your taxes and add it to your intellectual credit. And now, back to Philosophy Talk. We've all had deja vu experiences. Are they evidence that we've lived a past life? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence, including the intelligence of anybody you're the reincarnation of. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Robert Thurman from Columbia University, and we're thinking about reincarnation, past lives, future selves. Uh, Robert, I want to pick up on something you said uh, towards the end okay. of the last segment. You said that uh, it was a very Popperian point of view. Yes. Uh, the reference, I take it, is to Karl Popper, the great philosopher of science, right. and his main message was that what makes uh, a, an assertion scientific is that it is in principle falsifiable. That is, exactly. if you can't say what would show your statement false, you don't really mean anything. So tell exactly. me, what would, what would show you that uh, the Indian science of consciousness, and in particular reincarnation, was in fact not right. What would what would falsify it? Not not what does falsify it, but what conceivably could falsify right. it. Well, the entire structure of scientific materialism, a la you know uh, our Ant Man over at Harvard, you know, Wilson, uh, falsifies it. They think, and so fine, that's no problem. But I'm always I'm brought back to a, a video I saw of an interview of Carl Sagan and the Dalai Lama where Sagan asked the Dalai Lama, what would you say if we made a great experiment and we disproved beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're the reincarnation of somebody? And he looked expectantly, and the Dalai Lama said, 
Well, I'd accept it, of course. I would send a telegram out to all the Buddhists, like, it's been disproven. And then there was a beat where Sagan's jaw was dropping. He was amazed this so-called reincarnation was saying, I'd believe it. I'd believe it if you disproved it. And then the Dalai Lama rubs his hands together, leans forward, and says, how are we going to set up that experiment? But <laughs> Sagan, of course, had nothing to say. But wait a minute, so, Bob. Wait a minute, but that's the question. Are yeah. there? But so I, you're, you're, it sounds like right now you're talking out of kind of both sides here. On the one hand, you said, "Well, if the Ant Man turned out to be right, I'd be wrong." But then you right. just said, "Well, but there's no experiment they could do that would be." Well, no, no, gonna, I, I didn't mean, what, say what, what, that. What, what you, let, let me let me finish asking the question. What kind of thing? What kind of thing could move you away from this very strongly held conviction of yours? Okay, well, I'll tell you this. Uh, and I actually have to reverse the question. You said earlier you could see no reason, you saw no reason, you repeated it many times, about how, why you should believe in the continuity of consciousness beyond death or prior to birth. But what I'm asking you is, why do you see a reason to believe that your consciousness will be nothing? What gives you that? Who, whoever told you that? Okay. And how is that proven? Okay. This is What's the, the proof this, of that? This is the kind of question my wife asked me this morning when I, or last night when I told oh, her what good, this show is about. Oh, good for her. Uh, no, but I say there's a question of who's got the burden. Look, I try to make my beliefs consistent with the evidence. I try not to jump past the evidence, right? If I do jump past the evidence, I make a conjecture about uh, further evidence that I can produce. I, I mean, I don't see, if I start as an agnostic, I'm going to believe in, well, there's one consciousness here, and it's mine, and it begins and it ends. If I start as an agnostic, I see no reason, I see nothing that's going to move me off the, my agnosticism. And you've got the burden. You've got to move the agnostic off his or her agnosticism. I see nothing, mm. I see nothing that's going to move me off my agnosticism to your view about reincarnated consciousness. Well, wait a minute. You're saying agnosticism. But what you don't have agnosticism about is you feel sure that when you die, it's like going to sleep and you're going to stay unconscious in oblivion. I didn't say you I believe felt sure that. about that. I, you, you believe put, that. You're putting words in my... And what yeah. is the evidence? Let's, I'm asking let, let, you, what it, is the evidence this, for that? There's let, something let, called let, belief, let, uh, inference to the best explanation. But anyway. Well, yeah, let me shift to the evidence that ah. we heard about from Shuka uh, in favor of reincarnation. And I, I want to... <laughs> I want to give you a personal anecdote. I, I'm, I mean, in spite of uh, 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 your suspicions, I mean, <laughs> Tibetan Buddhism is the religion I'm closest to. And I became a believer in reincarnation when I was a teenager, and I read a book called The Search for Bridie Murphy. I read it with my grandfather. Oh, good. Oh, great. Let's hear and now, now, that was very much like these cases that Shuka's been talk, was talking about, a roving philosophical reporter, except this involved hypnosis. And unfortunately, or fortunately, it seemed to later be dis discredited, and mm -hmm. and and I've been a sort of a skeptic since then. But now, mm -hmm. uh, in studying for this program, I realize there's thousands of these case studies. So, right. so tell me, are these part of your basis for the belief in reincarnation, and what exactly do they show? Uh, and in the many cases that the researcher from the University of Virginia has found are wanting in, in credibility, what, what is the usual circumstance that leads him to disregard them? Is that a fair uh, question? Well, right. Well, he, uh, he, he researches very uh, thoroughly all of the different reports that he gets with the limited means at his disposal because it's not, of course, a priority for materialist scientists. His, his work is exceptional. Uh, but uh, 
There are some. There is one difference between a lot of those cases and the and the one you referred to, Bridie Murphy. And the difference of those cases in countries where it's not considered a remarkable thing that people have memory of previous lives, it's sort of like a normal thing, is that in many of the cases, the people have no benefit and there is no motive for them to fake a memory of that kind. Because they, and sometimes the most impressive ones are ones where they have a very strong motive, they and the family have a very strong motive to suppress the child's memory of the previous life because they're remembering some very disreputable thing about the family that the family absolutely has done gone to great lengths to try to obscure and to hide from its history. And there are a number of those cases, and they, to me, are very, very impressive. And also, the other one is the correlation that he finds, Stevenson, in some of his works, uh, the previous guy, not Jim Tucker, but the previous one, Ian Stevenson, uh, where he finds birthmarks of the child as being connected to the mode of death of the previous one. And like a case of a Burmese girl who was born with a very strange kind of birthmark and remembers herself having been a Japanese soldier who was killed in jungle fighting in the region of that village where that girl grew up and so on. And uh, a bullet went through his head in the way in which the birthmark is formed, this kind of thing. And those are very impressive, and I'm so, impressed by them. I have no doubt that some could be debunked, debunked. And, of course, a major reason for debunking them, that have some that have been debunked, it's where the person is getting some sort of leverage. They're publishing a book. They're becoming famous. They're getting on, you know, Johnny Carson or whatever. Bob, philosophy know. talk. Bob, uh, let me let me see if I can let a caller. We're getting really close to the end, but I'm trying to take another oh, okay. caller if I can. Okay. Stephen Virginia's on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Steve. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to know if um, Mr. Thurman sees any correlation between uh, Nietzsche's theory of recurrence and reincarnation. Thank you. Well, that's a good question. Uh, um, what do you think well, of that? Well, Nietzsche, Nietzsche was a scholar who knew about different Indian beliefs. That's true. He did study Sanskrit in his youth, actually. And Thus Spake Zarathustra was originally Thus Spake Buddha when he started it. And thank goodness it didn't end up as that because of the whole connotation of Nietzsche and Nazism because of his sister and her husband, who later forged some letters from him and so on. But, um, but uh, the eternal recurrence, therefore, I don't think there's any conscious connection. Right. But in a way, in a way there is a, a philosophical connection in the following sense. The eternal recurrence, if you consider it something like an aestheticization of the categorical imperative, Never do anything that you wouldn't be willing to keep be willing to keep doing for eternity. In other words, therefore, it's an ethical imperative kind of that you would only do something really great that you wouldn't mind repeating. And in a way, the karma theory has an ethical offshoot, which is that don't do things that will be negative in your current present because this will produce negativity for you in the future existence. Just right. like, you know, you don't harm your health by eating some bad substance which will disturb your health in the future. Right. And so, Just let me interject for the benefit of our listeners who may not be all that familiar with Nietzsche. The recurrence, the eternal recurrence in Nietzsche is kind of a test of how well you lived your life. The demon comes to you in the middle of the night and says, I'm going to give you this life over and over and over again to infinity in every detail. <laughs> would you say yes or would you say no? Only if you say yes would you have lived your life well. It, live it right. such that you could you could endorse your having to live it over and over and over and over again. I'm going to let right, one last right. caller in here, uh, and Beautiful. that's going to probably be the last thing uh, before we say goodbye to you. Christopher in Berkeley's on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Christopher. Well, be I, very brief, please. 
I, I think uh, a good evidence for reincarnation is just the proof that repeatedly has been found of people being able to remember what's gone on in the operating room when they've been clinically dead and then revived, and apparently the consciousness has been hovering around the ceiling. And, the, and there's uh, a lot of evidence with uh, Raymond Moody has written, you know, Life After Life books, and there's really quite a lot of evidence. Uh, th- thanks thanks for, a lot. Uh, Thank- Christopher, thanks a lot. I'm not sure near-death experiments prove the Christian version or the or the Buddhist version of an afterlife. It doesn't seem to me it weighs either. What Just briefly, what do you think of that, Bob? Because that's what he's well, saying. Well, I, I just it, I agree with you. I don't think it really proves it, but because there's like this guy Eben Alexander, they're all saying he had threshold experience when his brain was almost stopped functioning and when it restarted. And so he can't claim that his experience was when the brain was flatlined, as he tries to do. And that's a plausible debunking and a critical thing, and I I agree with that. However, however, it does give some motive to sort of look more carefully at the more subtle areas of consciousness. I I agree. Just like your colleague Thomas Nagel in his Mind and Cosmos book urges you to do so as a fellow philosopher. Unfortunately, the clock is a cruel master, and I have to say say thanks for joining us. Okay, my pleasure, and uh, I took you at your word to be opinionated. <laughs> okay, our guest has been uh, Robert Thurman, author, uh, author of Infinite Life, Awakening to the Bliss Within. He's a professor of religion at Columbia University, where he ho- holds the first endowed chair in the West in Indo-Tibetan studies. So this conversation continues at Philosopher's Corner at our online community of thinkers, where our motto is, Cogito Ergo Blago, I, I can tailor, think, therefore I blog. You, too, can become a partner in that community by visiting our website, philosophytalk.org. Now let's hear from the current incarnation of the fast-talking Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, as stakeholders in the self, humans like to ponder selfhood. What is it? Why can it persist from moment to moment, day to day, year to year, and, if you believe reincarnation, even beyond the grave? Except the self itself is elusive. We go through life-changing experiences. We go to war. We fall in love. We have kids. We get ill. Brain injuries often change our personalities. He's not the man I married, says the sad woman. She's no longer herself, her husband complains. Who are you when you come out of the closet? The same person who was in? Sometimes we accomplish things that change who we are. I can be Dr. Scholes or General Scholes or Senator Scholes for the rest of my life. There's glory in these appellations. But where's the glory in Wiseacre Scholes, a title I wear with pride? No glory. And sometimes our titles live beyond us. The president may die, but there'll always be a president. The king is dead. Long live the king. Corporations can last for generations or until bankruptcy. And a corporation is a person. It's the law. Its little feelings can be easily hurt. It can even disapprove of gay marriage because it's a decent, church-going corporation. Baseball teams have personalities, but when the Giants moved from New York to San Francisco, were they still the Giants? Wasn't there some shrinkage involved in the move? A major crime of the 21st century is identity theft. Well, you must have a self, or else how could it be stolen? Good to know. But it's Clark Kent, Superman's secret identity, or is he a mild-mannered reporter with a secret identity as a superhero? Could he be just another illegal immigrant from Krypton? The self is fraught. And yet we go to great lengths on this side of the grave to protect it. At least fictionally, we can become vampires. A vampire is still me. I just need the blood of others to keep it that way. Is that too much to ask? On the other side, the zombie me looks like me, a little worse for wear, but there's nothing left but appetite for brains, ironically. The self can be usurped in all sorts of ways. Shamans can wear masks and become animal spirits, supposedly. If you get a voodoo doll, you can stick pins in it and cause pain to the meat world equivalent of the doll. If you're a mystic, you can speak to the dead and have them speak through you. If you're a psychic, you can have your past selves give advice through you. If you're a movie star, you can change your name from Archie Leach to Cary Grant, become someone like you, but larger. Or you become so identified with a part, yourself disappears, like Hopalong Cassie or Pee Wee Herman or... 
Ian Scholes. If you buy an action figure of Han Solo and stick pins in it, will Harrison Ford feel pain? I don't know. We also commission portraits if we're rich as a way of preserving ourselves. If you're Dorian Gray, that doesn't work so well. The mythical world is full of evil twins, doppelgangers, clones. Which is the real you? Many women may actually be the reincarnated bride of a long-dead pharaoh who will be carried off into the pyramids by Boris Karloff. There's not much it can do about it, which is why so many of us choose to become vampires in the first place. Sure, we're undead, can't go outside in the day, can't pass a scab without quivering in lust, but it beats coming back as a moldy old slow-moving mummy or a cockroach, as far as that goes. I gotta go. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2015. Our executive producer is David Demarest. The program is produced by Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Our marketing director is Dave Millar. Thanks also to Ted Muldoon, Merle Kessler, Erica Topit, and Mark Stone. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and the partners at our online community of thinkers. And from the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a partner in our community of thinkers. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. Look, Homer, people don't come back as anything except for our Lord who came back as bread. That's it. That's it. Holy mackerel, you're still listening. You must be a big fan. You should become a strategic partner. Donate $250, get lots of cool benefits, help keep the program on the air. Yeah, but really, any amount helps. Thanks for listening. Thanks for thinking. And thanks for donating.